You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 94, History on Horseback. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for keeping the show going. If you haven't signed up yet, you missed our first patrons-only dispatch episode. We got a lot of great listener questions. I talked about the private life of Frederick the Great, Napoleon's public image in America, and some of my favorite lesser-known French generals, then closed out with a long quotation about the Siege of Genoa. If you sign up now, you will get access to the full dispatch, plus all future installments. Just go to patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon. Anyway, we left off last time on October 9th, 1806, with Napoleon's forces emerging from the Thuringian Forest onto Saxon territory. The War of the Fourth Coalition had begun. For the second year in a row, the Grande Armée would be spending its autumn on campaign in Central Europe. As we discussed last episode, France was experiencing some mild manpower problems. However, the units the Emperor was leading north were all at full strength rested and well-supplied. The casualties of the previous campaign had not made much of a dent in the culture of the Grande Armée. By and large, the army was composed of men with extensive campaign experience, most of whom had trained at Boulogne. Replacements had quickly gotten used to how things were done and been absorbed into this professional culture. The same could not be said of their enemies, the Prussians and Saxons. As we've discussed in our recent episodes, the Prussian army was inexperienced and behind the times when it came to tactics and doctrine. But perhaps even worse, there was a sense of lassitude among the Prussian forces. Regulations were ignored, officers took shortcuts, and the leadership often seemed preoccupied and unable to grasp the urgency of their country's situation. As for the Saxons, they didn't want to be there at all. General consensus among historians is that if the Prussians had not moved their armies into Saxon territory and effectively strong-armed them into honoring their alliance, the Saxons would have sat this one out. The Saxon army was even less experienced and professional than the Prussian military, and in this case, both the officers and the soldiers felt they were being forced to fight in someone else's war. These were not reliable units. A good general typically uses his least reliable troops for simple and low-stress duties, things like guarding supply lines or garrisoning towns and fortresses in the rear, 
and uses his best troops in his field army to do the hard fighting. But the Prussians had gone with the opposite approach. Their field armies were disproportionately made up of Saxon troops, while many good Prussian units remained far from the zone of combat. All of these Saxon units were under Prussian command, so for the rest of this series of episodes when I refer to the Prussians or the Prussian army, keep in mind that many of the troops are actually not Prussian but Saxon. Prussian and Saxon alike would be entering the campaign tired and frustrated. Their generals and their king had changed plans many times, and so the troops had been forced to march back and forth for weeks. Some units were near the point of exhaustion before hostilities even began, and the Prussian logistics system was so bad, and their preparations had been so confused, that on the first day of the war, many units were already experiencing shortages of key equipment and even food. Even in peacetime, in friendly territory, the Prussian supply system was simply not up to the task. Last episode, we described the organization of the Grande Armée. Six infantry corps under Marshals Bernadotte, Davout, Soult, Lan, Ney, and Augereau, plus a cavalry corps under Marshal Murat and the Imperial Guard, and an artillery reserve. Obviously, all of these units were united under a single command structure, with Napoleon at its head. I'd like to briefly do the same for the Prussian forces in western Saxony. There were three Prussian field armies in this region. Unlike the French, these armies were totally separate from one another. There was no united command structure, other than the fact that all three generals had to answer to King Frederick William III. The largest of these three armies was led by the Duke of Brunswick. We actually have met him before in our very early episodes. He had been the overall commander of the main Allied offensive into France, at the very beginning of the War of the First Coalition. It was Brunswick's army that had threatened Paris in 1792, provoking one of the most famous and significant dictates of the revolutionary government, the Declaration of the Nation in Danger. It was Brunswick who was stopped at the famous Battle of Valmy, which some argue saved the new French Republic. Before the revolution, Brunswick had been considered one of the best soldiers in Europe. By now, he was 71 years old, and that reputation had been eclipsed by younger generals, but he was still highly regarded. As a very young man, he had served on the headquarters staff of Frederick the Great during the War of Bavarian Succession, so he was one of the last officers in the Prussian army who could plausibly claim to have been a protege of the great king during wartime. With the benefit of hindsight, Brunswick was probably too old to be in command. His strategic thinking was no longer sound, and he was very much locked into an 18th century mindset. However, his reputation was such that it was impossible for younger, more forward-thinking officers to challenge him. Brunswick had a little over 60,000 men under his command. As I mentioned, this was the largest of Prussia's field armies. It was accompanied by King Frederick William, although he did not assume command or even take a very active role in the day-to-day -day business of the army. Brunswick's army was the northernmost of the Prussian forces in this sector, and the furthest from the Thuringian forest, through which Napoleon was attacking. South of Brunswick was an army of around 42,000 men under Prince Frederick Louis of Hohenlohe Ingelfingen usually referred to by the mercifully shorter title of General Hohenlohe. Hohenlohe was not a trained soldier. 
he had been put in charge of the army for political reasons, and was expected to act mostly as a figurehead, while his quartermaster, a professional officer named Colonel Christian von Massenbach, handled strategy, tactics, and the day-to-day operations of the army. I can't help but be reminded of Archduke Ferdinand and General Mach, who led an Austrian army with a very similar command structure to disaster at Ulm almost exactly a year earlier. Just like Mach and Ferdinand, Hohenlohe and Massenbach would be the first to encounter Napoleon. Their army was positioned nearest to the Thuringian Forest, right in the path of the Grande Armée. Another important thing to note about Hohenlohe is that he hated the Duke of Brunswick, and the feeling was mutual. The two men could agree on nothing. This was part of the reason for all the indecision in the Prussian High Command. Once again, you can't help but marvel at King Frederick William's poor leadership, putting a pair of bitter rivals into a position where the country's fate could well depend on their cooperation and mutual support. To the west of Hohenlohe was a smaller 28,000-man army under General Ernst von Ruckel. At 52, Ruckel was actually on the younger side for a Prussian general. He had seen combat in the War of the First Coalition and performed well, but this would be his first time leading a force of this size. So, all told, the Prussians had around 130,000 men in these three field armies in this area, the vast majority of their country's total military strength. Napoleon's invasion force would consist of about 150,000 men. France would have the edge in manpower, but the odds were not overwhelming. These three Prussian field armies were concentrated in a relatively small space, the Zala River Valley. Despite the obvious natural barrier of the river, this was very good ground for early 19th century military maneuvers. Not only was it flat, it was fertile and well-populated, which meant there were plenty of supplies to requisition, and lots of towns and cities that could be garrisoned or used as bases, and lots of roads for rapid movement. As we discussed last time, at this stage, there was still no clearly defined Prussian war plan. They knew they wanted to fight, but beyond that, there was little consensus. Amazingly, some Prussian generals believed Napoleon would fight on the defensive, and were thinking about mounting their own offensive into southern Germany. This is almost as delusional as General Mach had been a year earlier. There was no logic to this assumption whatsoever. In his current situation, Napoleon would have been a fool to sit around and wait for the enemy to attack. It should have been clear by now that Napoleon was no fool, but Hohenlohe was actually making the preliminary preparations for an offensive when the Grande Armée began to emerge from the Thuringian Forest. However, Napoleon was moving cautiously. As he explained to Marshal Soult, quote, With this immense superiority of forces gathered on such narrow ground, you can understand that I do not wish to leave anything to chance. I wish to be able to attack the enemy with double the forces, wherever he might appear. End quote. As we discussed last time, Napoleon was moving his units in what he referred to as a battalion square, in three columns, close enough that they could move to support each other within hours if one of them encountered the main body of an enemy army. The disorganization and indecision in the Prussian leadership had made it impossible for Napoleon to guess at their intentions, so the three columns of the Grande Armée were feeling around for the enemy, like the fingers of a hand searching for something in the dark. 
First contact was made on October 9th at the town of Schleis in modern-day Thuringia. About 4,000 men from Marshal Bernadotte's corps encountered a small Prussian force, about 2,000 strong. The Prussians had good positions in an area of thick woods just outside the town, but they were outnumbered, and it soon became clear the opposing French were only the vanguard of an even larger force, so the Prussian commander ordered his men to fall back. It wouldn't have been much of a battle, but in their retreat, a Prussian battalion was caught out of position. The French saw an opportunity, attacked, and the entire battalion was killed or captured. Over 500 men gone in the space of a few minutes. With the Grande Armée operating at this level of skill and precision, they were ready to punish even the smallest momentary mistake. With the victory at Schleis, the way was clear for the French to leave the rough terrain around the Thuringian forest and enter the easy country of the Zala River Valley. The news of this defeat went off like a bombshell among the Prussian leadership. It showed that, just like the Austrians a year earlier, they had massively underestimated the speed of the French army. It was the first concrete proof that Prussian war preparations had been woefully inadequate. This new sense of urgency allowed the Prussian generals to finally coalesce around a single plan. They would concentrate their forces on Napoleon's left and attack the flank of the Grande Armée as it passed north. It was a bold and ambitious plan, but before the day was out, they lost their nerve and changed their minds. The Prussian leadership sent out new orders, canceling the plan to attack Napoleon's flank and sending their units in a retreat to the north to find better ground. Given the relative speed of the two militaries, this might have been a prudent decision, but the timing was very unfortunate for the men on the ground. Once again, Prussian units had been ordered to march one direction, then go back the other way. Tragically, by the morning of October 10th, this second batch of orders, cancelling the attack, still had not reached the rear guard of General Hohenlohe's army, positioned around the town of Zalfeld. The commander of the rear guard, Prince Louis Ferdinand of Prussia, was still following the old plan for the attack on Napoleon's left flank. According to the new plan, the prince should have been preparing to retreat. Instead, he believed he had to hold this position, because soon the whole army would be marching this way to reposition itself for the flanking maneuver. The prince had around 8,000 men under his command, and they were standing directly in the path of Marshal Lawn and his advancing 5th Corps, over 20,000 men in total, although the French were still strung out on the march. 33-year-old Prince Louis Ferdinand was one of the brightest rising stars in the Prussian army, and at court as well. He came from the very upper crust of the nobility, a cousin to the king. His grandfather was King Frederick William I, and his father had been a senior general during the Seven Years' War. Louis Ferdinand had seen action during Prussia's limited involvement in the War of the First Coalition, and distinguished himself as a brave and capable soldier. He also had a second career in music. He was a virtuoso piano player, a patron of composers, and even wrote his own music, which was very well regarded. Modern historians and musicologists consider the prince an important forerunner of the Romantic movement, which would dominate European music in the mid-19th century. 
In our episode on the murder of the Duke of Enghien, I talked about how the young Duke was seen by many Frenchmen as embodying the best of the aristocracy, as a man who seemed to deserve his immense privilege. Many Prussians viewed Prince Louis Ferdinand in much the same way. Now, with the lives of 8,000 men in his charge, and an entire corps of the Grande Armée bearing down on them, the prince was facing the greatest test of his life. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. The two forces made contact outside Zalfeld just before 9 in the morning on October 10th. The initial French force was small, just a vanguard of a few thousand men. But as the morning wore on, French units continued to arrive, and it soon became clear Lawn would have a significant numerical advantage. The French attacked and pushed the Prussians out of their advanced positions. Lawn saw that Prince Louis Ferdinand had arranged his units into a relatively short line, and so began expanding his own line, hoping to use his superior numbers to get around the Prussian right flank. At around 11, a messenger galloped into Prince Louis Ferdinand's headquarters. He was carrying the orders from General Hohenlohe, canceling the flanking maneuver and ordering a retreat. If this man had arrived just three hours earlier, the prince and his troops would have been safely on the march north, and Lon and his men would have continued their advance without incident. Instead, the prince and his men were already engaged against a superior enemy, fighting in a battle that did not need to be fought. With every other Prussian unit already in retreat, there was no hope of any help arriving. Louis Ferdinand had no choice but to attempt a fighting retreat to try to somehow disengage from the faster and more experienced French and escape to join the rest of the army. His soldiers were already hard-pressed. By this point, Lon's troops had pushed into the town of Zalfeld and were engaged in bitter street fighting. The prince ordered his men to keep giving up ground and began looking for opportunities to extricate his command from this disaster. At around one, Lon ordered a general offensive. As a French light cavalry unit, the 21st Chasseurs à Cheval, moved to make their attack, their flank was exposed. Prince Louis Ferdinand saw a chance to launch a counterattack and buy his men a little breathing room. The call to charge sounded from the Prussian lines, and the prince himself drew his saber to personally lead his horsemen in a charge. It all went well. The French light cavalry were surprised by this sudden counterattack. They tried to turn to face the charge head-on, but the Prussian horsemen slammed home, and the two forces fought it out with sabers. But the prince had misjudged the situation. The chasseurs were not alone and isolated, but the first wave of a much larger attack. The 10th Hussars were right behind them, and upon seeing their comrades hit from the flank, the Hussars spurred their horses onward to join the fray. 
As soon as they saw these fresh enemy horsemen approaching, it was clear to the Prussian cavalry that their attack would fail. The Prussian troopers began looking for an exit, trying to cut a path through the melee to safety. Prince Louis Ferdinand was a brave man, but he was no fool. He too could see that this fight was lost, and made a break for open ground. However, he was spotted by a French trooper, Sergeant Gondet, the quartermaster of the 10th Hussars. Gondet and a comrade rode towards the prince, probably spotting his gaudy officer's uniform and imagining the accolades for capturing a senior enemy leader. With their fresher horses, they soon overtook the prince, and Gondet was able to catch him on the arm with a saber blow. The sergeant demanded the wounded prince surrender. Louis Ferdinand shouted back, No. And so, Gondet lunged forward. Louis Ferdinand raised his sword to parry the thrust, but was too slow. Gondet plunged his saber into the prince's chest. Louis Ferdinand slumped, slid from his saddle, and fell to the ground. He was dead, aged just 33. As you might imagine, by the next morning, Sergeant Gondet was a legend within the Grande Armée. The job of quartermaster was mostly bookkeeping. To put it mildly, they were not well known for their skills in the saddle or with the saber. But a lowly quartermaster, only a sergeant, not even an officer, had laid low one of the most famous generals in the Prussian army. Despite the ongoing hostilities between France and Prussia, Napoleon sent a letter of condolence to King Frederick William and his court. While Prince Louis Ferdinand had his fateful confrontation with Sergeant Gondet, the rest of his command was in bad shape. That general attack ordered by Marshal Lannes had devastated the Prussians all along the line. Some Prussian units broke and ran, leaving their comrades with no choice but to retreat as quickly as possible to avoid being enveloped by the advancing French. The Prussian line was disintegrating. French units surged forward into the gaps, and soon the Prussian retreat became a rout. Some individual units were able to maintain their cohesion and engage in fighting retreats, but most of the men turned tail and ran thinking only of saving themselves. The Battle of Zalfeld was a complete triumph for the French. The road was now open to continue the advance. They had only suffered around 200 casualties, and a famous Prussian general lay dead. The Prussians suffered just under 2,000 casualties. Most of them were able to escape, but almost every one of their units was totally shattered. It would take a long time to gather the survivors together and reorganize and re-equip them. In effect, the 8,000 troops of the late prince's command had been taken off the chessboard for the rest of the campaign, another disaster for the Prussians. The prince and his men hadn't exactly covered themselves in glory at Zalfeld, but I think the blame for this fiasco has to rest with the Prussian top brass. This was a battle that should never have been fought. It served no purpose. It only took place because the Prussian leadership had been indecisive and careless. The result was the deaths of hundreds of men, including one of the army's brightest rising stars, and the loss of around 8,000 troops, representing about 6% of the total strength of the Prussian field armies. Those men would be sorely missed in the coming days. The Battle of Zalfeld did have one negative consequence for the French. It gave them a misleading impression of the location of the Prussian armies. No one at French headquarters was aware the battle had occurred by mistake, that the prince and his men had never been intended to make a stand at Zalfeld. 
Again, Napoleon dispatched his light cavalry to gain intelligence on the disposition and movements of the enemy. First, Bonaparte assumed the enemy were headed northeast, towards Leipzig. Finding no major Prussian concentrations in that direction, he decided they must be headed for Erfurt to the northwest. But that also proved incorrect. On the morning of October 13th, three days after Zollfeld, French scouts finally got good, solid information on the location of the Prussian forces. They reported that the main body of the enemy was near the city of Weimar. Napoleon dashed off new orders, sending the bulk of the Grande Armée after them. The French would concentrate at a smaller city just east of Weimar, a university town called Jena. In his orders to Marshal Murat, Napoleon remarked, quote, At last the veil is torn. End quote. The emperor arrived in Jena that afternoon, and as you would expect, curious locals lined the streets to get a glimpse of the most famous man in Europe. That evening, a 36-year-old philosophy professor from the University of Jena recorded his experience in a letter to a friend. Quote, Last evening toward sundown, I saw the shots fired from the French patrols from both Gempenbachtal and Vincerla. The Prussians were driven from Vincerla in the night, and the fire lasted until after 12 o'clock. Today, between 8 and 9 o'clock, the French advance units forced their way into the city, with the regular troops following an hour later. It was an hour of anguish, especially because of the general unfamiliarity with the right, which everyone enjoys by the will of the French emperor himself, not to comply with the demands of these light troops, but just to quietly give them what is required. Through clumsy behavior and a lapse of caution, quite a few have landed in difficulties. However, our sister-in-law, as well as the Dutterlein household, came through with nothing worse than anguish, and have remained unharmed. She is presently quartering twelve officers. I saw the emperor, this world soul, riding out of the city on reconnaissance. It is indeed a wonderful sensation to see such an individual, who, concentrated here at a single point, astride a horse, reaches out over the world and masters it. As for the fate of the Prussians, in truth, no better prognosis could be given. Yesterday, it was said that the Prussian king had his headquarters in Kapellendorf, a few hours from here. Where he is today, we do not know, but surely further away than yesterday. Yet, such advances as occurred from Thursday to Monday are only possible for this extraordinary man, whom it is impossible not to admire. End quote. That professor's name was Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. His career in philosophy had only just begun, but in the latter half of his life, he would become perhaps the most influential European philosopher of the 19th century. His encounter with Napoleon on October 13, 1806, would have a profound impact on his thought. That famous description of Napoleon is often shortened to a much pithier single phrase, history on horseback. Now that Napoleon finally knew where the Prussians were, he could begin formulating a plan. He would use the superior speed of the Grande Armée to catch up with the retreating Prussians and engage them with the bulk of his force. Meanwhile, Marshal Davout and Marshal Bernadotte would hook around to the east and north to attack the Prussians from the rear and cut off their retreat. If all went well, the three Prussian armies would be caught in a pincer and destroyed. There was one problem. There were only around 30,000 French troops in the vicinity of Jena, Lannes' V Corps plus the Imperial Guard. 
However, thanks to the speed and superior organization of the Grande Armée, Napoleon could be confident of three more corps arriving before noon the next day, bringing his total strength around Jena to nearly a 100,000 men. This was all happening very fast. Only a few hours earlier, the French didn't even know where the Prussians were. Now, Napoleon was preparing his men for a battle that could begin as soon as the very next day. The emperor knew an opportunity when he saw it, and was not afraid to seize the moment. Ironically, the Prussians had actually discussed facing the Grande Armée somewhere in the vicinity of Jena, but the idea had been rejected. Instead, they would continue their retreat north, up the Zala Valley. Napoleon was not anticipating this. He believed the coming battle would see the bulk of the Grande Armée attacking the bulk of the Prussian forces. But in fact, by the next day, the Prussians were planning to have a large proportion of their forces further to the north and east, already marching on the next leg of their retreat. Napoleon went to great lengths to avoid tipping his hand. Some French units were ordered to advance towards Jena in absolute silence, in case a Prussian light cavalryman was listening somewhere nearby. On the night of the 13th, each company around Jena was limited to two or three fires. It was a cold night, and a thick fog clung to the ground, so there must have been dozens of freezing men huddled around each one of these fires. Meanwhile, the foraging parties of Marshal Lon's V Corps descended on the town of Jena. Tens of thousands of men needed to eat, and with the speed of the army's movements over the past week, the supply trains had yet to catch up with the frontline troops. They soon discovered that, like any good college town, Jena was generously stocked with alcohol. It didn't take long for things to get out of control. Soon, the streets were clogged with mobs of drunk French soldiers, and part of the town was on fire. So much for discretion. A young French soldier who was present in Jena on the 13th would later recall, quote, We drank to the health of the King of Prussia all night long, and all the sealed wine was divided among us. There was any amount of it. Every grenadier had three bottles, two in his bearskin hat and one in his pocket. All night long we had mulled wine. We carried some to our brave gunners, who were half dead with exhaustion, and they were very thankful for it. Their officers were invited to come drink the mulled wine with ours. Our mustaches were thoroughly wetted, but we were forbidden to make any noise. Imagine what a punishment it was not to be able to speak or sing. Every one of us had something witty ready to say. End quote. While the men of the Fifth Corps and the Imperial Guard were looting and partying, many of their comrades passed a difficult night, racing towards Jena through darkness, fog, and bitter cold. In some places, they had to take up axes and cut through the German forest to create paths for the artillery. Meanwhile, Napoleon was finalizing his plans. Marshal Lon's V Corps were the freshest of his troops, and they would lead the main attack around Jena. The French had a small bridgehead on the far bank of the River Zala. Lon would expand this bridgehead to create space for three more corps to join him for a general attack. Meanwhile, east of Jena, Marshal Davu would take his third corps around the Prussian left flank, supported by Marshal Bernadotte's first corps. However, crucially, Napoleon's orders to this effect went only to Marshal Davu. Bernadotte's corps had been behind Davu in the march column since the beginning of the campaign, 
so the emperor probably took it as assumed that Bernadotte would continue to follow Davout as he advanced. But at this stage, he did not send any direct orders to this effect to Bernadotte's headquarters. That may sound like a trivial thing, and in a sense it was, but this oversight would have major consequences. That night, when Marshal Davout rode to Bernadotte's headquarters to confirm their plans for the next day, he was surprised to find Bernadotte uncooperative. The Emperor's orders clearly implied both corps would make this flanking maneuver together, but only Marshal Davout had those orders. The prideful Bernadotte did not enjoy feeling like he was being ordered around by a peer. He refused to bring his corps north in support of Davout's movement. Davout stared at Bernadotte for a moment, then, without a word, turned around and left the office, slamming the door behind him. As he stormed out of the headquarters, he was heard to remark, quote, So much for that. End quote. At around 3 a.m., Napoleon did one last ride around the battlefield, then returned to his headquarters for a few hours' sleep before dawn. It wasn't quite as dramatic as the scene the night before Austerlitz, only ten months earlier, but just like at Austerlitz, Napoleon was confident. There would be a lot on the line in the morning, but he felt he had the Prussians where he wanted them, and the performance of their forces in the first skirmishes of the war had been lackluster. There was every reason to expect success. As for the Prussians, by morning, the largest of their three field armies, roughly 60,000 men under the Duke of Brunswick, would be on the march north, leaving behind General Hohenlohe's force of around 40,000 men facing the French, with another 15,000 men under General Ruckel just to the west. They knew Marshal Lannes was nearby with all or most of his corps. In fact, despite the fog, they could just barely make out enemy positions beyond their own. So the Prussians were aware that there would likely be an engagement in the morning, but they too were reasonably confident. They held the higher ground, and their line was anchored on some of these small outlying villages outside Jena and a small forest. On the other hand, the French were on open ground, with their backs to the river Zala, not an advantageous position. And of course, from what they could see, the Prussians had the numerical advantage. They estimated Lon's strength at around 30,000 men, which was actually about right. Lon, in fact, had 21,000 men under his command, plus a few thousand recently arrived reinforcements from other corps. However, the Prussians were only right for the moment. They were still underestimating the speed and flexibility of the Grande Armée. None of them anticipated that by morning, there would be over 10,000 more French troops within that bridgehead or that before noon, there could be over three times as many French troops on the battlefield. So both armies would go into the coming fight with incorrect ideas about the disposition of the enemy. October 14, 1806, would be a day of chaos and confusion, even more so than most battles. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
the Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. By morning, there were over 45,000 French troops and 70 cannon squeezed into their tiny bridgehead on the far bank of the River Zala, centered on a small plateau known as the Landgrafenberg. Marcelin Marbeau, who we discussed in the last dispatch, was serving as a lieutenant in 7th Corps, and he described what he saw. Quote, Before daylight, Lon's Corps and the 1st Divisions of Soult and Augereau's Corps, together with the infantry of the Imperial Guard, were massed on the Grafenberg. The term massed was never more correct, for the chests of the men of each regiment were almost touching the backs of those in front of them. But the troops were so well-disciplined that in spite of the darkness and the packing of more than 40,000 men onto that narrow platform, there was not the least disorder. And although the enemy were only half a cannon shot away, they perceived nothing. End quote. As dawn approached on the morning of October 14th, the French prepared to attack. None of Napoleon's grand plans for the coming battle would be possible if they didn't first expand that bridgehead around the Landgrafenberg to allow more of their units to cross the Zala and engage the Prussians. Shortly after six in the morning, the French infantry began their advance into the fog. The Battle of Jena had begun. A young French soldier described what he saw. Quote, Day had scarcely broken when the Prussians greeted us with cannon shots, which passed over our heads. An old veteran of Egypt said, The Prussians have bad colds. Listen to them coughing. We must send them some mulled wine. The whole army now moved forward without being able to see one step ahead of them. We had to feel our way like blind men, constantly falling up against each other. End quote. They encountered bitter resistance, especially in the small towns and villages that anchored the Prussian defensive line, many of which saw fierce street fighting. The early morning fog added an intensity to the fighting. Opposing units could not see each other until they were almost at point-blank range. It was difficult to fire accurately in these conditions, and so officers ordered their men to fight it out with the bayonet. Still, in spite of the fog and the stubbornness of the Prussians, the French managed to gain ground, and in one part of the line, troops under General Saint-Hilaire, who we introduced in the last dispatch, actually achieved a small breakthrough. The Prussians were slowly falling back, but counterattacked wherever they could. Some of these counterattacks were actually very successful, but they never took these opportunities to seize the initiative and try to put the French on the defensive. It was dangerous to allow Napoleon to dictate the course of the battle, but it seems no one in the Prussian leadership had the boldness or vision to give the order. As the French took ground, that mass of men within their bridgehead began to spread out, and more units were able to cross the Zala and begin maneuvering into position. So far, the day was going exactly as Napoleon had planned. 
Soon, enough space had opened up within the French bridgehead for Marshals Soult and Augereau to get the rest of their corps across the river and begin moving into position for the next stage of the battle. The village of Klosvitz in the northeastern sector of the battlefield had been one of the main centers of Prussian resistance all morning, but at around 10, it finally fell to a determined attack by men from Marshal Soult's corps. However, almost as soon as they occupied the town, Fresh Prussian reinforcements arrived on their right flank, and immediately attacked. It looked like Klosvitz was about to change hands once again. Fortunately for his men, Marshal Soult reacted quickly. The call to charge sounded from the French lines, and hundreds of light cavalrymen drew their sabers and began to trot forward. The Prussians were just about to make their final assault, when a torrent of French horsemen suddenly tore into their left flank. The entire Prussian force was scattered. Hundreds of men were ridden down by the triumphant cavalry. Two battle flags were captured by the French, and the survivors ran north in disorder. Meanwhile, in the center of the battlefield, much of the fighting was focused on another village, Wirtzain Heiligen. It was taken by men from Lons Corps, but the Prussians immediately took it back with a strong counterattack. The size and ferocity of this Prussian assault took Lon's men by surprise. The French forces in the center of the battlefield were thrown into chaos. If the Prussians had seized the moment, they might have turned the tables on Lon and forced him onto the defensive, at least temporarily. But once again, the Prussians held back, limiting themselves to a small, local counterattack. And so, the moment passed. Lon and his officers rallied their men, and soon, 5th Corps was ready to go back on the offensive. The Prussian commander, General Hohenlohe, was fighting very cautiously. By this stage of the battle, he had begun to suspect he was not facing a vanguard, or a single corps of the Grande Armée, but a major enemy force, perhaps even the main body of Napoleon's army. He sent messengers west to General Ruckel begging him to bring his 15,000 men to the battlefield as quickly as possible. Ruckel was relatively close. Even with the painfully slow march speed of the Prussian army, Hohenlohe could be reasonably confident that there would be significant reinforcements arriving sometime in the early afternoon. General consensus among historians seems to be that Hohenlohe wanted to avoid committing to any decisive course of action until Ruckel and his men arrived. You can see why he might have thought this was a good idea, but he had no clue when Ruckel would arrive, or if he would arrive at all. Meanwhile, with each passing minute, the French gained more ground, their bridgehead grew larger, and more French troops arrived. On the south of the battlefield, Marshal Augereau was leading his 7th Corps into position. He was careful in his movements, using reverse slopes of hills and a ravine to keep his men hidden from the Prussians as long as possible. Seventh Corps emerged suddenly along the Prussian right flank, having remained hidden until they were almost close enough to engage. With the abrupt arrival of this huge force on their right flank, the Prussian line was suddenly beginning to look very short and dangerously outnumbered and isolated. By noon, Hohenlohe probably had well under 40,000 men engaged and fit for duty. French reinforcements had been arriving all morning. By noon, Napoleon's forces were probably nearing 100,000 men, although there was still not enough room for all of them to get across the river. The most recent arrivals were Marshal Ney's 6th Corps. 
Napoleon placed them mostly in the center to bolster Marshal Lannes V Corps, which had been fighting hard all morning. Ney was one of the most aggressive commanders in the Grande Armée, which is really saying something. He looked the part, too. He was a big, red-faced, barrel-chested man, with a shock of unruly red hair and an impressive pair of sideburns. He was not afraid to lead from the front, which is why the soldiers of the Grande Armée nicknamed him the Bravest of the Brave. As his men deployed, Marshal Ney surveyed the battlefield. Having watched the French reinforcements streaming over the River Zala, he could see the Prussians were about to be faced with a desperate situation. And he could also see that they didn't yet know how much trouble they were in. Ney couldn't pass up such a perfect opportunity. He ordered Sixth Corps to attack immediately. Ney's orders from the Emperor said nothing about an attack. He was supposed to form up his men and await further instructions. But Marshal Ney was always guided first and foremost by his fighting spirit. Time and again, his intuition had led him to glory and victory, and it had taken him from the rank of sergeant to general in only four years. He wasn't about to start ignoring those instincts. And so, Sixth Corps attacked alone. Ney's intuition wasn't wrong. His men made incredible progress, quickly seizing the village of Wirtzain Heiligen, which had confounded the French troops in this sector all day. Ney lived for this. His soldiers seemed all-powerful, scattering everything before them. It must have been exhilarating. However, in a sense, Ney's troops were too successful. As they pushed forward, they left the rest of the French line behind them. Soon, Sixth Corps was alone, and had made itself a target for every Prussian cannon in the center of the battlefield. Suddenly, the all-powerful Sixth Corps was taking heavy casualties, and its advance slowed to a crawl. For once, the Prussian leadership had the presence of mind to seize an opportunity. Prussian units rushed into the gap behind the advancing Sixth Corps. The red-haired marshal and nearly 20,000 of his men were now cut off. Thanks to Ney's impetuousness, 20% of all the French forces at Jena now needed rescuing. The fighting had gone well for the French all day. This was their first major mistake of the battle, but it was a big one. The French center was now 20,000 men weaker than Napoleon's plans had anticipated. The emperor would be forced to change strategy on the fly to redirect troops to rescue the trapped corps. If he failed, it would take a big chunk out of France's numerical advantage. It might even shift the momentum of the battle towards the Prussians. Ney formed his corps into a gigantic square, and his soldiers braced themselves to hold on until help arrived. The Prussians continued to blast them with artillery. Prussian cavalry charged the square again and again, each time failing to break it, but each time finding the courage to reform and try again. Fortunately for Ney, the Prussian leadership was, as always, slow. The French were vulnerable. This was the time for Hohenlohe and his generals to act decisively and deal some real damage, maybe even try to seize the initiative. They should have been throwing everything they had at Ney's trapped corps, and attacking the center wherever they could, to exploit the Grande Armée's sudden weakness in this sector, and to prevent the French from organizing a proper rescue. But, once again, opportunity passed them by. Once they closed the gap behind Ney's corps, Hohenlohe ordered a halt. 
His men simply stood there in open ground, waiting in their neat lines for the French to react. On the French side, Napoleon was relatively close by when all this happened. He did not take the news well. Quote, he seemed angry and took snuff frequently as he stamped up and down in front of us. End quote. Despite his anger, the emperor reacted almost immediately. He called up several units of the Imperial Guard from his reserve to bolster the middle, and then began redirecting Lon's corps towards Ney's embattled force. Napoleon's artillery opened up on those waiting masses of Prussian soldiers and French light infantry found good positions in the captured villages, where they could snipe at the Prussians with total impunity. Prussian regiments in the center of the battlefield were torn apart. One of their officers would later remember, quote, In places, the fronts of companies were only marked by individual rows still loading and firing, while all their comrades lay dead around them, end quote. It is a credit to their discipline that the men did not break and run for cover. They stood there, as ordered, and were killed. It was an incredible waste of life. Lon attacked, and the remains of the Prussian center fell back. The French were able to re-establish the connection with Ney. The danger had passed. Now, Napoleon finally had the bulk of his forces across the Zala and formed up opposite the Prussian lines he began preparing for a general attack across the entire front. The emperor and his aides rode across the battlefield as he finalized his orders for the big push. They rode past the grenadiers of the Imperial Guard, still held in reserve. They were an imposing sight, hundreds of the biggest men in the army in their tall bearskin hats, all standing as still and silent as statues. Perhaps they stood a little taller or puffed out their chests as the emperor rode past. But all maintained discipline. No one reacted. Well, almost no one. As they saw the rest of the army forming up for the attack, some of the new recruits were impatient to get into the action themselves. As Napoleon rode past, a few voices could be heard from the ranks, crying out, Forward! The emperor twisted around in his saddle and pulled back on his reins, stopping his horse. He glared down at his guardsmen and remarked, quote, only a beardless youth would presume to judge in advance what I should do. Let him wait until he has held command in thirty battles before he presumes to give me his advice. End quote. The scene has gone down in history, in part due to a famous painting of the incident by Horace Vernet. Ironically, those lowly grenadiers were right. Napoleon was almost ready to launch his general assault and anyone could see the time was ripe for a bold attack. The French had finally managed to bring their superior numbers to bear. The Prussians were looking tired, and had just suffered a major blow to their morale, with their failure to maintain the encirclement of Marshal Ney. Their flanks were endangered by the longer French line. General Hohenlohe had committed all his forces. There was no reserve left. The only Prussian forces not in the front line were those that had been shattered by the French earlier in the day and were in no condition to fight. There was still no sign of General Ruckel and his 15,000 men, who were supposed to be arriving at any moment. At around one in the afternoon, the attack began. The Prussians fought hard, at first. A few of their cavalry units actually attempted to charge directly into the teeth of the French advance, but it was no use. 
All along the line, the Prussians were outnumbered and outgunned. The French line was longer, and so the units at either end were able to menace both Prussian flanks as they advanced. General Hohenlohe and his men were in trouble. Soon, the fire from the Prussian lines began to slacken, and many Prussian regiments began to inch backwards, under relentless pressure from the French. It was obvious that gaps would soon begin opening in the Prussian defensive line, and General Hohenlohe had no reserves with which to fill them. He had no choice but to order a general retreat. A fighting retreat in the face of a determined enemy advance was one of the most difficult maneuvers in Napoleonic warfare. It required iron discipline. Units had to move slowly and deliberately to maintain their formations, while every instinct was telling the men to run as fast as they could. But it looked like the Prussians might pull it off. The Midnight Blue battalions began slowly shuffling away from the battlefield, giving up ground to the advancing French without allowing them to get too close. However, the day had gone very badly for the Prussians, and their morale was about as low as it could be. This delicate maneuver proved too much for a few Prussian soldiers. We've seen in past episodes how panic could spread on a battlefield. One man runs. His neighbors think, well, I'm not going to be the last person still facing the enemy. I'd better run too. And before you know it, the whole regiment is making for the rear. Once a whole regiment routes, the line is broken, and men in neighboring regiments often decide the time has come to save themselves, before the enemy can exploit the gap in the line. The panic can snowball until an entire army is totally disordered, thinking only of their fear. And that is exactly what happened to General Hohenlohe's men on the afternoon of the Battle of Jena. One minute it looked like the Prussians might pull off their fighting retreat. The next minute, their whole army had disintegrated. The famous Prussian discipline seemed to have failed them completely. Many men threw away their weapons and equipment just to get away faster. Unfortunately for the hapless Prussians, Napoleon had a lot of cavalry concentrated at Jena. As soon as the enemy broke, the emperor ordered his horsemen forward in pursuit. The fleeing Prussian soldiers were not escaping danger. Their sorrows had only just begun. There were a few Prussian units that maintained their cohesion, including one lone Saxon regiment which formed a square and was able to hold off the French for several crucial minutes while their comrades escaped. These men were fighting against their will in someone else's war, but their sacrifice saved many lives. It was at this moment, with the battle completely lost and rapidly turning from a defeat into a catastrophe, that General Ernst von Ruckel finally arrived on the battlefield with his 15,000 reinforcements. General Hohenlohe had been counting on this force to save his army, but at this moment, they might not even be able to save themselves. As soon as he saw what was happening, Ruckel ordered a halt and ordered his men to form a defensive line. They managed to hold off Marshal Augereau and his corps for some time, but 15,000 inexperienced troops stood no chance against six times as many victorious Frenchmen. It wasn't long before Ruckel's troops were also running for the rear, pursued by French cavalry. The Battle of Jena was over, although the pursuit of the defeated Prussians continued for hours. Generals Hohenlohe and Ruchel had fielded just under 60,000 men. By nightfall on October 14th, 
just under 30,000 had been killed, wounded, or captured by the Grande Armée, roughly half of all the Prussian troops engaged in the battle. As for the survivors, they no longer really composed an army. Almost every unit had totally disintegrated, with its remaining troops scattered and separated from their officers. Almost all of their supplies and equipment had been captured by the French. It would be months before the remaining 30,000 or so men from Hohenlohe and Ruckel's armies would be in any condition to fight. By the end of the battle, Napoleon had nearly 100,000 men on the field. He lost somewhere between five and 6,000 men. Before the war, the Prussians had bragged that one of their soldiers was worth several of the enemy, but in the first major battle, they had suffered five casualties for every one they inflicted on the French. The Battle of Jena was one of the most lopsided victories of Napoleon's career. As usual, the emperor did not savor his victory. Almost as soon as the Prussian line collapsed, he and his staff began organizing the evacuation of the wounded and burial of the dead. At the beginning of the day, Napoleon had believed he was facing the main body of the Prussian forces, that all three of their armies were concentrated in the area west of Jena. That morning, he had planned to engage and destroy all three of them, and, as afternoon wore into evening, he believed this is exactly what he had done. And he wasn't alone. Basically, every French officer at Jena believed they had just defeated all three Prussian field armies. Once he had seen to the wounded, Napoleon finally returned to his headquarters. As he rode east, the sun was setting. It was some time after six in the evening. He arrived to find a very anxious young captain waiting for him. He was a staff officer from the headquarters of Third Corps, Marshal Davout's command. You might recall that before the battle, Napoleon had sent Third Corps and First Corps under Marshal Bernadotte north, where they were to cross the Zala River and hook southwest to block the Prussian retreat from Jena and possibly hit them from the rear while Napoleon attacked with the main body of the army. However, this young captain told Napoleon the plan had gone wrong. Davout had advanced alone without support from Marshal Bernadotte, and had soon found himself engaged against somewhere around 60,000 Prussians. Napoleon could not believe it. He said to the captain, quote, Your marshal must be seeing double. End quote. This was a somewhat rude reference to Marshal Davout's sight. He was almost blind and needed thick glasses to function. However, as the captain related his story, facts began to fall into place. It became increasingly clear he was telling the truth. Napoleon had only defeated two Prussian field armies. The Duke of Brunswick's force, the largest of the three armies, had not been engaged at Jena, but marched north, where they had blundered right into Davout and Third Corps who had apparently been forced to make a stand alone against a force more than twice their size. Napoleon's men had achieved amazing things on the field of Jena that day, but all of their success might already be erased if the Duke of Brunswick had managed to defeat Davout and his isolated corps. But that story will have to wait for next episode. Before we go, I'll remind you that in a few weeks I'll release the next Dispatch a little exclusive bonus content for the Patreon subscribers. If you want access to it, visit patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon to sign up. And for those of you who are already signed up, 
Thank you, and don't forget to leave any questions for the next dispatch in the comment section of the previous dispatch. I'd like to close out this episode with something a little different, a piece of music by the slain Prince Louis Ferdinand. Here is a selection from the Prince's 11th Larghetto for Piano Quintet in G Major. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.